I like you guys to tell me what I'm getting wrong. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. It was me. I was I was the one wrecking Dan's uh, phone-in show. <laughs> Just teasing you. Hi, everybody. Nice to have you here on a Thursday night. You know what I call this night, Friday Eve. I'm also a little giddy because I like getting letters. I think everyone likes to get letters. Uh, but if you had had the kind of letter that I received, you might be a little giddy, bit freaked out, all of the above, because I got a 10-page letter from the Happy Face Killer. And dang, did I learn a lot about what he's doing every day in lockup. Um, for starters, I did not know you get to play Xbox till you break the knob. Uh, but that's what he's done. And also you get to do 5K runs and 10K runs and 15K runs and you get to play putt-putt golf. And um, I mean... There's just so much to do. I kind of want to go. I'm not going to lie. Like it sounded like a country club. I know prison is not a country club. But the stuff that Keith Jesperson told me is available at his maximum security lockup in Oregon. Dang. The schedule sounds like awesome. I'm going to read the letter for you and tell you why he's communicating with Rex Huerman, who's the suspected Long Island serial killer, saying, dude, just... Confess and like just try to get your sentence out here with me. It's crazy. Okay, so that's coming. Also, I'm still not over the Wendy Williams thing. I'm still not over this whole mess of who it was that is responsible for basically sending Wendy Williams into her twilight years in the worst possible light. I mean... If you asked me last week about Wendy Williams' legacy, yes, she was having some problems, etc. But man, she's like the number one talk show host out there. Maybe Oprah could beat her. I don't know. But honestly, Wendy Williams, tour de force, tour de force. And I know because I met her personally, I saw her work side by side with her in that studio. She is, was unbelievable. And then this documentary hit and it has shown us uh, different Wendy Williams. Uh, Wendy Williams in a diminished capacity. That's a legal term, by the way. A very diminished capacity. Um, suffering from alcohol-induced dementia, it is said. And that is upsetting. And if Wendy were capable of knowing how this documentary was going to show her, I'm sure she wouldn't be the executive producer. But because she isn't capable, perhaps, of signing a contract like that, somebody else did. And that's the question. Who are the somebody else's? Because now her publicist is talking. And she took it on the chin in that documentary for being someone who was enabling all of this. Taking her out to Los Angeles to have a meeting with NBC about a comeback show when she was drinking and stumbling and incapable of conversing. Didn't even know what the Oscars was. You're going to hear from her in just a moment. Um, also, Gary. If you're a podcast listener, and I kind of think you are if you're watching this show, right? This is a true crime show, and some of the best podcasts out there are true crime. And the number one show, the number one podcast is this one, Dark Down East, Kylie Lowe. She put out a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago about Bobby Miller, Rebecca Bobby Miller. And it's a killing maybe most people hadn't heard of, kind of obscure, Way up there in New Hampshire. 
But when you hear about it and how some evil character was lurking in her home, when she was just home with her yellow lab sport, and he trained that shotgun and pulled the trigger, shooting her in the face, and then shot the dog. It is confounding why they have not been able to solve that crime. But Kylie Lowe and Dark Down East has done a hell of a job shining the spotlight. And she is on this show tonight, so don't go anywhere until you hear about the podcast. And you'll hear from Kylie herself. Um, she's just really great to talk to her. She's super interesting when you get to talk to someone off the podcast. But let's start here. If you do the crime, you do the time. That is our system. It is the criminal justice system. It's here. It's most everywhere else. It's kind of boiled down to the eight words. Uh, tonight, I want to talk about three of those words. Do the time. That can mean very different things depending on the crime and the prison and the actual inmate. But I think we can all agree that if you're a serial killer with at least eight kills confirmed and as many as 160 claimed, the time that you're doing should be pretty damn hard. And the truth is it might not be depending on where the gavel comes down. I want to take, for instance, the happy face killer. Legal name, Keith Jesperson, a serial killer who got his nickname from the taunting letters that he sent authorities and the media adorned with smiley faces. And if you want to know what kind of time Jesperson is really doing, well, he is happy to tell you. And I myself can tell you because we're now pen pals. It's official. Um, and breaking news, he just sent me this 10-page letter did not have a smiley face on it, for which I am thankful. Um, but it is all about his life on the inside, and it is fascinating. I'm going to read a whole bunch of this to you in just a moment. But before he wrote to me, he wrote to News Nation correspondent Laura Ingle, too. And Laura even got him on the phone for a hot minute. Now she wanted to talk about another letter, famous letter, that he wrote. It was a letter addressed to the suspected Long Island serial killer Rex Hewerman. I suggest to him that he uh, solve himself to uh, contact the authorities to make a deal to do his time outside of New York because when he's convicted in New York, now New York's no joke. It's a, it's a bad prison system. I mean, these are tough guys in there. Again, we're back to doing time. That's kind of been a theme with me uh, lately since my sit-down interview last week with convicted wife killer and maximum security inmate Drew Peterson. The time that Peterson is doing comes to 38 years on paper and another 40 for another crime, meaning he's going to die behind bars for murdering his third wife, Kathleen Savio, and orchestrating a hit on the prosecutor who put him behind bars. The Savio murder happened 20 years ago tomorrow. Think about that. What kind of time is Drew Peterson doing? What does he do with all of his time? I asked him how he spends his days. Have a listen. When you're in your cell, what are you doing typically? Watching TV. That's it? That's the big, big event for the time I'm in there, so. What about reading? I don't read, I don't like to read. I don't enjoy it, so I don't do it, so. Eyesight okay? Eyesight's great, fine. And what about writing? Do you write letters to anybody? No. Once in a while, an old girlfriend will write, will write me a letter. And if somebody writes me a letter, I'll write back. But just to write, I don't. It don't happen. So, Do you get a lot of mail? A little bit. I used to get a lot more. I think it's less and less as time goes on. So. 
So what kind of mail do you get? Uh, Kmart uh, stuff. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I, I get letters from people. I used to get fan mail from people. A lot of girls were writing me, surprisingly. And uh, that's kind of dwindled out. What would they say? I don't know. They, they were like love letters. I love you, I want you. <laughs> I don't know, stuff. Would you write back? Yeah. So it depends. It's just like a lot of times the letters stopped if I asked them for pictures. <laughs> what do you look like? <laughs> Send me a picture. And sometimes, for some reason, that offends them. So who knows? Did you develop any friendships or, um, or even love affairs with any of the people who wrote you? Well, it's hard to have a love affair when you're locked up. I mean, it's sometimes I would have something like that. It was kind of exciting, but it's just like I can't get with them, so it's just like it didn't make a lot of sense. So no girlfriends in the last 12 years, would you say? Nothing. Nobody came and seen me. No one came to visit? Well, once in a great while. I didn't get a lot of visitors. And I think that might be part of the reason they got me in Indiana instead of Illinois, because it's a, kind of a travel distance, so people don't want to travel to see you. Did any of the pen pals that you had, did any of them end up being long-term pen pals or relationships? No, they normally dwindle out. You know, there's this so much you can write and then you get bored with it so it's like I'm not a big letter writer so I don't really like out of courtesy I'll respond to them but other than that I don't write a lot I tell you if I were locked up I would just read all day long and I would wait for someone to bring me food <laughs> sometimes I dream about it but Drew doesn't read and he rarely writes and he calls the 60 TV channels that he gets in his cell the big event <laughs> But back to Keith Jesperson, happy face killer. He's a writer. He is, um, he's actually written advice for Rex Hewerman, that Long Island serial killer suspect. Jesperson says that Rex Hewerman should really, quote, solve himself and confess so that he can bargain to get a better prison like the one Jesperson is in in Oregon State. That's the penitentiary he's in, Oregon State. He told me some of that himself. I want to read it to you word for word. It's super interesting. Okay. Um, he says this. When I wrote to Rex Hewerman, I pushed him hard to own his crimes and force a deal to come here to OSP, Oregon State Prison, to do his time. That is his only real option. Deal to be placed in a prison away from harsh New York's system. We get inmates from other states. For a host of reasons, a stand your ground case out of Florida, Mike is here. Uh, we've had parts of the Manson family and mob hitmen. Why? Easier to take them out of state than to deal with the security issues. Sent Rex my everyday schedule and store items we can purchase, a menu, and what our yard has to offer. And this is where the letter gets really good because he tells me how he's spending his time as a convicted serial killer, like the whole schedule of his every day. Here's what he says. OSP, Oregon State Prison, and Oregon's prison system is based on incentives, things that can be taken away if we do bad things. Clear conduct is rewarded. I'm sort of an icon in here. All the guards know me and most of the inmates. Uh, what is my day like? I live in a single cell in D block, D160. At about 6.15 a.m., my cell door opens and I walk to breakfast. 
Return is 30 minutes or so. I could go to the yard at 8 a.m. to 9.15 a.m. Most days, I stay in my cell doing artwork and watching TV. Perry Mason comes on at 9 a.m. Me TV. Uh, we have a count at 10.30 a.m. At around 11.15, we start lunch. At around 1.15 p.m., afternoon yard. Usually, I go to my job when afternoon yard is over. Normal work schedule starts at 2.30 p.m. My work is in the clothing room. I've had the job now for about 14 years. Back in my cell by 3.30 p.m. for count at 4 p.m. Supper starts at 5 p.m. After the meal, I go to work until 8 p.m. But most nights were done by 7.30 p.m. I rush home to watch, I thought he was going to say Banfield, but he said Gutfield <laughs> on Fox. <laughs> he watches Greg Gutfield. Okay. Um, after which I tune into a country song station to listen to Willie Nelson's Roadhouse. Saw him in person back in 1985 and 1987. Sleep comes at 9 p.m. Just a quick aside there. Can you imagine if you were at that concert? Either one of those concerts with Willie Nelson's um, 85 and 87 Roadhouse concerts. You were there with the Happy Face Killer. Ooh. Okay, as it turns out, the, um, the real reason that his schedule is like that is because there are plumbing issues in the honor block. And the honor block is where he's usually housed. I want you to listen to how Jesperson, who again is serving multiple life sentences for killing eight women, uh, describes the honor block. This is what he writes. At 5.30 a.m., my door opens and stays open until 10.30 count and 4.30 count and 9 p.m. count up until 11 p.m. I have a lock on my door and a key on me. When we leave ourselves, we can lock them with our lock. We have our own showers, pop machine, telephones, microwave ovens, exercise equipment, Xbox, TVs, 190-degree water, tablet, and I'm sure I'm leaving something out. Kiosks for video visits. And that, by the way, is just sort of like inside the warm prison walls. Here's how he describes the outside rec yard, which I thought was fascinating. He writes, we have a grandstand set up uh, to set up for bands. Bands, like musical bands, to come in and entertain us. I think of Johnny Cash, right, at Folsom Prison. Um, every year, we have a custom bike and car show that comes in. Uh, runners from all over the country run in our events. 5K, 10K, 15K, you can go online. We have a quarter-mile paved track, two baseball fields, volleyball area, eight horseshoe pits, First thing I thought of. And he says they are real steel horseshoes. Uh, we have an 18-hole putt-putt golf course. Got handball courts, two full outside basketball courts, two weight training areas, 40 phones, 30 benches to sit on. Inside our card room, which is seen in the opening scenes of Bandits movie starring Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton, we have TVs for movies and sports. We have shuffleboards pool tables, ping pong tables, 30 card tables, phones, soda machines, coffee machines, exercise equipment, full inside basketball court, microwave ovens, a shower room, and a couple of heavy bags to hit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did you know? Right? I'm not crazy saying it might be kind of nice to take a few weeks off and hang out at a place like that.
However, you got to hang out with the people who are there. And that's where Catherine Ramsland comes in, because she knows all about that kind of psychology. She's the forensic psychology and author of several books, including The Mind of a Murderer. Uh, forensic psychologist. Uh, so uh, first of all, just Dr. Ramsland, are you surprised that, um, that Keith Jesperson wrote me back in such detail? Not at all. He wants to stay in touch with anyone in the media that can keep his name and face out there. He loves attention. So it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure he wrote right away when he had the opportunity. I wondered if it was that or if it's just like, what else are you going to do? I mean, I was surprised Drew Peterson says he doesn't read and doesn't really write because you really do have a lot of hours to fill. Yeah, but Jesperson keeps in touch with media people. He keeps in touch with a podcaster regularly. He wants to be associated with any kind of news event. That's why he wrote to Hewerman. He That's somebody that was getting a lot of press, so he wanted to establish an association with him. So he calls himself an icon, says everybody in the uh, prison knows him, which I wouldn't be surprised if you're a serial killer with a name, happy face killer, people would know you. Apart from that, and the fact that he said he played Xbox until the, the, you know, the handle broke and that he was like one of the leaders, um, I didn't get the sense that he was full of bravado. And I fully expected that a 10-page letter from a serial killer would be full of Dennis Rader-like bravado. Were you surprised at that? I found bravado in the letter. Uh, he's trying to make you think that he's very important, that um, you know, he's got good advice for people that he's got all kinds of great privileges and, and he's held in esteem. He doesn't want you to have any disdain for him or to think his life is diminished in any way. There is grandiosity and a lot of impression management in that letter. What am I not seeing with my very untrained eye that a Dr. Catherine Ramsland uh, could see between the lines? Well, I'm an icon. That's Really? <laughs> You're an icon? You're in a prison. Uh, nobody cares about you. Um, he, he talked about that. He talks about all the amazing things that he has access to. His life is, is enhanced. He doesn't have to pay for any of this. Um, he's, he's in a position to be able to give advice to someone like Rex Hoyerman. Um, and his, his advice is good. His advice is solid. He's got the best ideas for this guy. If only... That guy, you know, Rex would confess what he really wants. He doesn't care about Hardman. He cares about that he would be the guy that got him to confess, that persuaded him, that has the power to do so. There is grandiosity in that letter. And the fact that he would try to associate himself with someone who has so much media attention and think that he could actually be the one to get him to confess. That's grandiose. I have just, uh, listen, I've got 10 seconds, but I've got to ask you, those conditions in that prison sound awesome. Uh, does that make for a better, better prison and a better prison population? Like I said, I only have a couple seconds, but I'm curious. If they're true, I don't know that they are. He, he certainly exaggerates a lot, and I really couldn't tell you what their record is. All right, I have my work cut out for me. I'm now going to, like, sign up to see if I can go on a tour. Catherine Ramsland, thank you for being on. I always love talking to you. Thanks.
Still to come, the outrage over that Wendy Williams docuseries is only getting louder and not just from the fans who feel like their idol was exploited. Now some of the people who allowed that alleged exploitation to happen are speaking out too and claiming that they too are appalled. What? That story's next. talking about. Where is Wendy Williams on Lifetime? Um, a four-part doc in which the former talk show star is really seen as, I don't know, she's in a diminished state for sure. And she's suffering from dementia and alcoholism. She's also repeatedly berating the people who work for her. It's very uncomfortable. Take a look. She has people around who are yes people and allowing this to continue. Right? This is all too much. Go! Drive! I have no idea where we are. I wish you would get liposuction. <laughs> okay. What the f brand is this? Ugg. Ugg? Yeah. Put it in the same position, please. Close it all the way. Dumbass. So that was um, Wendy's publicist that she was yelling at. Uh, her name is Sean Zanotti. She's a member of Wendy's entourage, and um, she's featured prominently in this documentary, and she is really coming under fire for what people say is having enabled what many of Wendy's supporters are calling blatant exploitation. As you probably know, and as you may have seen for yourself already, the once indomitable daytime talk show star comes off as confused and belligerent and entirely incapable of taking care of herself or handling her own affairs. But the publicist... She says she's as upset as anyone else and that it is all the producer's fault, people with the cameras, that Wendy was shown this way. Even though it is literally the publicist, Sean Zanotti's job as a publicist to keep cameras away from your client and avoid scenes like the ones in the documentary from being recorded in the first place and perhaps not to shepherd new entertainment projects for Wendy Williams given that Wendy seemed so clearly incapacitated. Here is what Sean Zanotti told my colleague Elizabeth Vargas. So the production company reached out to me at least eight to 10 times over and over again, asking me in, about um, having Wendy part of this production. They told me that this was going to be about her comeback, her comeback, her story, and sent numerous emails in regards to that. Um, immediately when I mentioned it to Wendy, she was excited and said, I want to do this. I want to get my life out there. I want to talk about my comeback. So, you know, it's interesting because the entire time, as you see me talking throughout this piece, I'm talking to her comeback, which is what I was told this story was going to be about, the right. comeback of Wendy Williams. Yeah, but and it, it, it doesn't... About does it, I mean, I, I'm just curious, does it look like she's in any condition or shape for a comeback? She, I mean, I, or, or is the documentary selectively edited? I'm just trying to, what we're seeing in this four-part documentary is a woman who's clearly in trouble. She doesn't look like she's anywhere close to a comeback. Yeah, and I have to mention, this was a year ago that we filmed, so this was not recent. This was actually this time last year, right. over a period of three days with me. Um, and she was in the process at that time of getting back to herself. So she was, you know, working on her health. She wanted to focus on her podcast and that sometimes it was on TV, but she was really trying to focus on the better component of her, her life. And so when they mentioned that to her, 
and that she can showcase that, she thought that was something that she wanted to so do. So is what we're seeing in this documentary not an accurate depiction of what was going on in Wendy Williams' life during that year that they were shooting? No, it's not. In fact, it's interesting, especially with the scenes in regards to me, which is why I'm saying they were exploiting her, in my opinion. Um, there were many, many, many good moments, a lot of good moments that happened during that time. And they decided to show none of the good moments, but focus in on all of the negative moments. Uh, those horrific scenes that you saw of her when she was talking to me in, in not such a nice way, Immediately that evening, we had a conversation off camera. I talked to her about it. We talked about it. She apologized, and she literally never talked to me like that again, ever, since then, uh, up until the time she went into the facility. We were very good friends, not just, we didn't just work together. I was a friend to her. She was yeah. a friend to me. You were actually in the documentary saying you've never seen her drunk, and you don't think she has a problem controlling her drinking. How can that possibly be true? Because that was just my second time being around her. So my first time was the experiences that you saw, that, you know, those examples when she was not being so nice to me. The second time was when we were in Los Angeles. Although I had worked for her for the, that past year, I didn't see her. I would just talk to her right. on the phone and communication that way. So I have never personally seen her drunk ever in my life that I have not experienced that. So all those the, scenes they show in the documentary, you weren't present for those. Scenes. I was not there. I live in Los Angeles. I've been around Wendy three times by myself. I mean, three times in total of seeing her in person. That's it. And those three times were the filming of this in which they try to show these components, but not showing anything beautiful. They didn't show, you know, the beautiful moments that we had. They chose to show these negative components and not even focus on the fact of why she came to Los Angeles. Right. What that out. And I think that they changed that narrative for a reason. And just to be clear, you did call the Guardian to warn the Guardian that there was this documentary crew recording all this, right? Absolutely. So when she came to Los Angeles, I asked for her, the Guardian's phone number. I reached out to the Guardian. I explained to the Guardian that, you know what, I am concerned. Wendy has come here. She is upset. She's afraid of the management. She has not eaten. And did you, you know, tell her she was also drinking? Because, again, it's a very public and publicized, chronicled, you know, well-chronicled battle with alcoholism yeah, already at this point. Yeah, but that, that lunch moment hadn't happened yet. Okay. Um, what so, did the Guardian yeah. say? The Guardian said she was going to look into it. Everybody has seen this and is reacting to this. The only person who hasn't seen this documentary is Wendy herself. What do you think she's going to think when she finally does? I think that she would be mortified. I think that this is something that she, this was not what she was looking for. Uh, this is really something that's negative against her brand. I do want to say one thing that has not been mentioned and I think is important sure, to say. Sure, very quickly. Yeah, I wasn't paid for this documentary. I didn't get paid anything. I have not been paid since I've been working with her. I have worked for her and helped her for free. I have fed her for free out of my own pocket. I have done nothing besides give to her. Very important to note something about that. Um, Sean Zanotti, at a few points in the documentary, also tells the documentarians about the alcohol. Oh, Wendy knows her limits. When Wendy knows her limits. Wendy is an alcoholic. Wendy has been struggling with alcoholism. Wendy lived in a sober house, fully publicized on television, on her TV show. You're a publicist. You should know. This is your client. And the manager was constantly trying to pour out alcohol all around Wendy's home while Sean Zanotti was there. So to say she knows her limits, she can have a drink, she knows her limits, I'm sorry.
I really have a problem with that, along with a couple of other things, like taking her to a meeting with NBC Universal um, in a state where she also doesn't know what the Oscars are. And then the idea of going to the Oscars, she wants to wear shorts and a T-shirt. Williams was diagnosed with aphasia and dementia after the crew started shooting, but before the project aired. The producer said if they had known, they wouldn't have proceeded with Wendy's request to document her so-called comeback. They insist that they never tricked or deceived anybody. One of the executive producers, Mark Ford, said this. Wendy was a partner. She is listed as executive producer, as well as her guardian, her manager, all of our lawyers. Everybody signed off, and we and were aware all the way through what we were filming. And so there was never anything that was, you know, done behind her back. And you should know that the producers say they, they were asked to come in. She's executive producer to, to document her comeback. And then when they came in, they saw that that was not what they were witnessing. Several people in Wendy's life have gone public with their concerns this week, including her best friend, her brother, uh, the rapper named Fat Joe, and just this morning, Charlemagne the God. I felt like, you know, everybody in this documentary is exploiting her because and it, it surprised me to see that her son was an executive producer because mm-hmm. there's no way I would want my mother to be seen no, ever. in that light. Like, ever. there's no amount of money. There's I don't mm-hmm. even know the story they was trying to tell. Mm-hmm. If they was trying to raise awareness to her mm-hmm. being, like, held captive somewhere, then mm-hmm. I get it. But they seem to know where she is. Yeah. Tommy Williams joined us here live last night and told us that his sister is at a treatment facility somewhere, he doesn't know, and is doing better. But he said the family doesn't know exactly where she is and they can only speak with her if she calls them. Tommy told us Wendy called yesterday, his sister, Wanda, and that he would be briefed about that phone call um, and what was said on that phone call today, but we have not been able to get a hold of Tommy today to debrief us as to what Wendy said yesterday. Still to come, it is one of the most brutal unsolved murders in recent memory, and you probably never heard of it. On Halloween night, way back in 2010, someone with a shotgun walked into Bobby Miller's house and shot her point blank in the face. And then for good measure, they shot her Labrador. They shot her twice. Like when she was on the ground, dead, they shot her again. It was personal. Sport the dog, why that? More than 13 years later, the shadowy figure that disappeared into the night is still out there somewhere. Uh, But not if Kylie Lowe can help it. Her smash hit true crime podcast, Dark Down East, is hell-bent on finding this evil killer. Was it the husband? Was it the son? Was it someone else? Kylie's with me next. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I don't think Bobby Miller could see it coming. I really don't. I don't think she knew, right? She and her yellow lab sport, they were just settling in for a quiet night at home. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a shadowy figure 
was in her living room. I don't know if she saw him there. I don't know. She was in the kitchen. So was Sport. There is absolutely no way to know if she ever saw the killer or heard the racking of the shotgun before that killer fired it into her face. She could not possibly have seen the second shot coming to her head because she was already dead and on the ground when that killer decided to pump a second bullet into her head. And nobody, nobody saw as the killer then trained the shotgun on Bobby's yellow lab, shooting sport twice. That is so personal. The murder of Roberta Bobby Miller in Guilford, New Hampshire, has never been solved, despite the fact that it happened on Halloween night way back in 2010. That's coming up on 14 years. The next morning after Halloween, that'd be November 1st, Bobby's son, Jonathan, discovered the body of his 54-year-old mom, and he called the police. Police who have been looking for the killer ever since. And Kylie Lowe is looking too. She's helping to solve this crime with a blockbuster podcast called Dark Down East. It has soared to the top of the charts. Here is how Bobby Miller's younger brother, Ken, described his sister's crime scene on the podcast. I mean, they really didn't say anything to us. They were very tight-lipped. Um, they did tell me the circumstances of how Bobby was killed. Um, she was in her kitchen, and she had been working on some... Uh, she was actually building some window boxes, so she was going in and out of the house to a garage doing some stuff. And uh, it was Halloween evening, and um, she was shot twice. She was, she was wearing a hoodie and she was shot in the face and throat area um, the first time. And I was told that the hood captured some of the blast and then she fell on the floor and was shot again in the back of the head. Kylie Lowe is an investigative journalist and the host of that podcast and I spoke with her about Bobby Miller's case. 14 years since um, since Bobby was murdered. Let, let's talk a little bit about how sort of bizarre the case is. She was shot in the face. It is such a personal killing. And then shot again in the back of the head. Her dog was also shot. She'd been going through this tumultuous divorce. It almost sounded like it was an easy one uh, to solve, but it wasn't. Well, you know the true crime trope that the husband did it, but this case wasn't that straightforward. You know, there was a lot of coverage at the beginning about that tumultuous divorce and all the battles back and forth over finances. I mean, this was a years-long process to finally end their marriage. And they had proceedings, additional court hearings planned for later in the week after Bobby was killed. Of course, she never made it to those hearings. And so the attention being on Gary Miller isn't a surprise. Now, in speaking with Bobby's brother, Ken, he's told me that Gary was cooperative with the investigation from the start. And Gary's also stayed in touch with Bobby's family. And he's just as dedicated to getting this case solved and figuring out what really happened to Bobby. So on its face, it, it wasn't as simple. And he's got his alibi, his new wife for that night. Um, it did seem interesting, though, that 
he had won the cottage in the divorce. And then, yeah, I guess it was like 48 hours before she was murdered, the cottage burned down. So a lot of people thought, well, maybe out of revenge, she burned it down. And out of anger, he, he killed her. But again, you know, he, he seemed to check out. So then the next sort of focus was her son, which defies all logic, what, what son would kill his parent. But why was the son eyeballed at all? Well, to be clear, the son, Jonathan Miller, has not been identified as a suspect. However, he hasn't been ruled out either. He does have a criminal history. He has uh, several charges to his name, including a felon in possession of a firearms charge. Uh, however, that firearm was not found to be connected to Bobby's killing. And he said he bought it for fear of his own life because his mother's case was unsolved. He always had a very close relationship with his mother and Ken, Bobby, brother, you know, will attest to that. But he believes that there was some financial motivation for uh, Bob, for Bobby's son to kill his own mother. Um, but in previous reporting, he's maintained his innocence and he's also referred to himself as a mama's boy. What's weird, though, um, and this was sort of the, the, the detail I can't shake, was that on some of these missing posters, Ken, Bobby's brother, had set up a camera, um, which is interesting in itself, you know, to see, you know, who is near the, the posters. And when the poster, one of the posters got written down, the last person who was seen before the camera went blank was Bobby's son, this, this son Jonathan, with a rock in his hand, almost as though he was the one you know, who destroyed the, the camera. Why would a son do that? Why would a son want to destroy a camera near a missing poster, you know, trying to, or near a, a, an unsolved uh, murder poster for solving his mom's murder? Well, it certainly does raise an eyebrow, and you would think that a son would want his mother's case solved just as much as anyone else. So, like I said, there there is some suspicion surrounding him, but police have yet to name him officially as a suspect. Fascinating. One other issue, there's no robbery, no sex assault, so motive doesn't seem to be helpful here in, in, in finding anyone. But neighbors who live like 200 feet one way and 150 feet the other way, nobody heard four gunshot wounds that night? Particularly shotgun shots. I mean, those are loud. So that also is another bizarre aspect of the case. And you have to wonder, you know, what witnesses haven't come forward uh, or, you know, may have information still that could help close this case. Well, let me just put it out there. You've done a great job at highlighting this case. The New Hampshire Cold Case Unit will take anybody's tips if someone's watching right now and thinks they might be able to help. It's 603-271-2663. Again, 603-271-2663. Keep us posted, Kylie Lowe. And again, congratulations on doing such a stellar job on the investigation into this piece. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me and shining light on Bobby's story. And again, Kylie Lowe's podcast is called Dark Down East. It's good stuff. Coming up next, a father in Ohio accused of shooting his three little boys dead, execution style. He stood before a judge and he asked for the central part of the murder case against him to be thrown out. But here's the shocker. What he wants thrown out are his own words. Even the ones we saw on camera with our own eyes. It is a death penalty case. But when can your own words be used against you and when can't they? Details next.
Verizon Business Unlimited, I get 5G, truly unlimited data, and unlimited hotspot data. So no matter what, I'm running this kitchen. Make the switch. It's your business. It's your Verizon. Um, you hear it in the movies, right? All the time. You hear it on TV shows. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Uh, you have the right to a court appointed attorney. <laughs> you have the right to remain silent and more people should really use it. But sometimes they don't. And, um, they go ahead and they open the floodgates with stuff that they later regret. And here's the thing. Uh, police officers also can screw up and forget to remind you of that right. They forget to remind the suspects that they're working with to shut your cake hole, <laughs> lest your words come back to bite you. And this is the case for Chad Dorman in Ohio. Uh, that man is accused of lining up his three little boys, ages three and four and seven, and then shooting them all dead execution style, after allegedly planning to do so for months. But now Chad Dorman wants the court to forget all about the stuff that he said to the police, stuff that the state of Ohio and kind of everybody else in the world considers a confession. And the state of Ohio is seeking the death penalty in this case. Chad Dorman's lawyers say that that confession is inadmissible. I mean, look at this. He was like yammering away on camera, on the body cam, right? The minute they came to pick him up. He didn't run. He was sitting there. But his lawyers say that it's inadmissible. Um, And the reason they say it's not allowed is because they claim the police violated Chad Dorman's rights. The prosecutors say that's baloney. He voluntarily waived his rights. But the trouble is here that there's a detective in this case that is admitting that the um, so-called Miranda warning that he read, Chad Dorman, he didn't read it word for word. Yeah, that's a little sticky. Word for word. I wonder how many words and how many words he didn't read. The judge has to weigh all of this and figure it out. And he has not ruled yet. Says he needs some time to think this one over. Um, the analysts say... How the judge decides could mean the difference between Dorman being eligible for the death penalty in this crime or not being eligible for the death penalty at all. Uh, So we are following. Make sure you watch this space. And, man, just how does a father do it? Coming up tomorrow on the show, uh, more on the Wendy Williams story. Like I said, Wendy Williams is unreachable. Her family cannot reach her. But they keep their phone hot because she calls them occasionally. And yesterday she called them. And so uh, her brother Tommy was going to get the debrief on what his sister Wanda heard in that phone call. How was she? Was she sober? Was she okay? Was she lucid? And Tommy tells us he's going to debrief us. He did not do so today, but we are hoping for that tomorrow, plus more fallout from that documentary. And so come on right back. In the meantime, stay tuned for Cuomo. He's next. I'm Chris Cuomo. Let's get after it. Immigration is the number one issue for voters like you, and nothing is being done about it on purpose. Biden and Trump were both on the border today, both saying they want to do more. But both sides seem to prefer the problem. 
But there are those willing to do the job of your interests. Tonight, we have a member of Congress from each party in the House who want to fix the border together. I'll give you more on that in a second, but it's good news. We also have 